Notice that Jesus defines all Christians as those who do the will of God. If you do the will of God, if you hear the word of God and do it, then you are a Christian. Obedience to the word of God doesn't purchase our salvation, but it proves it. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom continues in his current series titled, Jesus, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord? We're looking at the claims of Jesus of Nazareth in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. As we've explored these claims, the Gospel of Mark presents only a few ways to respond to whom Jesus is. And today, Tom will begin to explore the three main responses to the teaching and life of Jesus. You can view him as a deceitful liar, an evil mad lunatic, or you can accept him as who he said he is, the promised Lord and Messiah. The choice is yours and it is the most important decision you'll ever make. Let's join Tom right now to find out more here on The Word Unleashed. Wikipedia, the online encyclopedia, has an article on what it calls C.S. Lewis's trilemma. Essentially, in mere Christianity, Lewis refers to Jesus' claims, such as the authority to forgive sins, behaving as if he really was the person offended and he could forgive them. His claims to have always existed. His claims that he would come back and judge the world at the end of time. Lewis, Wikipedia goes on to say, argues that these claims logically exclude the possibility that Jesus was a great moral teacher because Lewis believes that no one making such claims could possibly be rationally or morally reliable unless he was God, end quote. C.S. Lewis didn't create the trilemma. As we have been learning over the last couple of weeks of our study together, before I left and and will continue tonight, in Mark's account, in one day in Jesus' life, the people of Jesus' day were faced with exactly the same trilemma. It's in Mark chapter 3. We're studying Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through the end of the chapter, verse 35. And you'll remember that there are three scenes in that section. The first scene, verses 20 to 21, Jesus' family leaves Nazareth to come to Capernaum to find him. The second scene is in the house in Capernaum where Jesus is teaching. And there in verses 22 to 30, the Pharisees who had come up, or down rather, from Jerusalem came with the intention of confronting Jesus with spying him out, and they make a serious accusation against him. And then the third scene is in verses 31 to 35, when Jesus' family arrives at that same house where he's teaching on that same day, that same morning. In those three scenes, we are confronted with the only three possible responses to Jesus' work and his claims. And they're always the same choices. His claims were false. Jesus claimed to be God. If you read the New Testament honestly, you cannot come away with any other conclusion. He claimed to be God. So either his claims are false and 
he knows they're false, in which case he is a liar, or his claims are false and he doesn't know, in which case he is a madman, convinced that he's God when in fact he is not, or his claims are true, he is all that he claims to be, and he is Lord. I think Mark intends that every person who reads this account must make a choice of what to do with Jesus' remarkable works and claims. And you see those choices unfold in the section. The three options, the first is that he was a deluded lunatic, that he had lost his senses. There was something wrong with his mind. He wasn't thinking clearly to do what he did and to say what he said. This accusation was spoken against Jesus by none other than his own family, his brothers. And his mother, Mary, obviously confused, went along out of genuine concern for him. Verse 21 says, when his own people heard of his incessant activity of all that was going on around him, they went out to take custody of him, literally to arrest him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. The other option that presents in this text is that he was a demonic liar. This option comes from Jesus' enemies, the religious leaders. A group of influential scribes and Pharisees had come from Jerusalem to spy on Jesus and his disciples. And as they were there in the house in Capernaum with Jesus, Jesus had healed a demoniac that morning. And the people, as they saw what Jesus had done, they saw the power of it, they began to ask and wonder with each other, could this be the Messiah? The leaders in Jerusalem couldn't let that stand, so... They had a problem, but at the same time, they couldn't deny that a miracle had actually taken place. So they were left with only two options, either accept Jesus' claims, which they would not do, or accuse him of being in collusion with the only other being in the universe capable of such a mighty act, and that was Satan himself. So they make two very explicit accusations. They say he is possessed by Beelzebul. They were accusing Jesus of being personally inhabited by, controlled by Satan himself. Jesus, they said, is possessed by the devil. The second accusation they made is related but different. He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. What they were really saying was, Jesus is a liar. He's telling you one thing, but something else is actually true. He has a different agenda than what he's telling you and is in league with Satan to accomplish it. So the options we've seen for responding to Jesus' claims so far are he's a delusional lunatic or he's a demonically inspired liar. Now, if he was not a lunatic and if he was not a liar and yet he made the claims that he made, there really is only one other option. He is the divine Lord. And that's what we want to look at tonight. Verses 31 to 35. This third option grows out of Jesus' comments when his family arrives in Capernaum on that same morning. Let me read it for you. Mark chapter 3, verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister 
and mother. Now, this third option and this third group of people that are gathered there that day have a totally different response than the two before them, and we'll look at this response in a moment. But first, I want you to be aware of the very unusual circumstances of this text I've just read to you. Remember that this is part of one very long day in our Lord's ministry. I won't take time to walk through this list again. We've done it before. But all of this transpired on one day. But the main thing that you need to understand is that early that morning, Jesus' own family, in the verse I just read to you a moment ago, verse 21, Jesus' own family decided to arrest him and to take him by force back to the family home in order to control his outrageous and embarrassing behavior. So from Nazareth to Capernaum is about 20 miles. So they would have jumped on that international highway, walking, riding. It would have been a lot different than any international highway you've ever seen, but it was was able to be traversed, and they make it very quickly. It's about 20 miles, about five hours brisk walk. So later that same morning that Jesus had healed the demoniac, that the Pharisees had accused him of being in collusion with the devil, he's in a house in Capernaum teaching. Later that same morning, they arrive. Now that brings us then to verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. Now, one part of what happened that morning that's not here in Mark is in Matthew's gospel. After that encounter with the Pharisees that we've studied here in Mark, where they accused him of being in league with Satan, after that, they asked Jesus for a sign, and he offers them that famous statement about no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. After that, Matthew says this, While he was still speaking to the crowd, so this is that morning, he's in the house, he's speaking to them, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. So all of this transpires in a very tight time frame. That's what I want you to see. Verse 31 says, and his mother and his brothers arrived and were standing outside. Jesus is now standing or is sitting, we're not sure, inside probably Peter's home near the synagogue there in Capernaum. The crowd is there, and it's so tight that no one else can get inside. They're all seated in kind of concentric circles around Jesus. There are his disciples, the 12. There are other disciples. There's the Pharisaical entourage from Jerusalem. And on the fringes are the curious from all over the region and beyond. His his mother and his brothers simply cannot get close to him, so they pass along the word. Notice verse 31 says, they sent word to him and called him. Now you can just picture the message being passed kind of from person to person through the crowd. Jesus is teaching. Somebody gets another person's attention. Hey, Jesus, mother and brother, waiting for him outside. And the word passes on until finally someone nearby tells Jesus, Verse 32 says, a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Matthew says someone told him. Luke says it was reported to him. Mark says the crowd said to him. What happens next, though, is truly amazing. Jesus' very surprising response. He begins with a question. Notice verse 33. It's a question designed to get them thinking. Answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And then in 
a follow-up to that, he makes a very unusual statement. Verse 34, looking about at those who were sitting around him, So he's, remember now, close to him would have been his disciples. He's teaching them. The Pharisees are there. There are other curious onlookers around, crowded in this house. And Jesus looks around at those sitting about him. Matthew adds, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples. And then he says, behold, my mother and my brothers. This is really one of Jesus' hard sayings. Imagine if you're the mother and the brothers. Imagine getting this report. In fact, this is such a hard saying that a famous skeptic of Christianity used this saying to accuse Jesus, quote, of trampling underfoot everything that is human, love and blood and country. And this would have been absolutely shocking to first century Jews. They were very family-oriented. Family was your very first priority In fact, even the way the family's request sort of makes its way through the crowd to Jesus implies that this should take precedence over what he's doing. You need to stop what you're doing and go see your mother and brothers. They're outside. But Jesus is using this interruption to make a profound point, a point the New Testament makes so often. There are greater ties than flesh and blood. Let that sit on your brain for a moment. There are greater ties than flesh and blood. Jesus considers his true followers to be his true family. It's very interesting to see this unfold throughout the New Testament. In the parable in Matthew 25, Jesus is the king judging, and he will say, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, you did it to me, speaking of his followers. In Matthew 28, Jesus says to them at, after the resurrection, don't be afraid, go and take word to my brothers. Literally in the Greek text, there's no word for brethren, it's brothers. To my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me. In Luke 11, someone says to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Surely the, the family ties, that is a, a blessed thing to have been your mother. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Romans 8, he's spoken of as the firstborn among many brothers. And I love Hebrews 2, verses 11 and 12. Watch what the writer of Hebrews says. For both he who sanctifies, that's Christ, the one who sets us apart, And those who are sanctified, that's us, are all from one Father, for which reason he, that is Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Think about that. Jesus says, my followers are my family. Jesus ends his response with the reason he would make such a statement. After his question and his statement, he gives this reason. Look at verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, or my brother rather, and sister and mother. It's a little different in Matthew's account, Matthew 12:50. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, 
He is my brother and sister and mother. And Luke's is different yet, Luke 8, 21. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. That's what it means to do the will of God. It's to hear the word of God and do it. Notice that Jesus defines all Christians as those who do the will of God. If you do the will of God, if you hear the word of God and do it, then you are a Christian. Obedience to the word of God doesn't purchase our salvation, but it proves it. What is the will of God that obeying, when I obey it, will mark me as a true Christian? Well, Go back to the very beginning of Mark, the command of the gospel. Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus began that message that's recorded first is what? Repent and believe. There's the will of God. It was a command from God. Repent and believe the gospel. But it goes beyond that to the rest of what Jesus taught and said. Jesus put it like this in Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? There are those who profess, Titus says, to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. You see, the disciples gathered around Jesus, the ones that he pointed to there on the floor sitting around him, they didn't agree with his physical brothers. They didn't think he was a deluded lunatic. The disciples gathered there at his feet didn't agree with the assessment of the scribes and Pharisees either. They didn't think that he was a demonic liar on some agenda for Satan. Instead, his disciples had been led by the work of the Spirit of God to the third option. They had embraced him for what he claimed to be. They believed that he was the divine Lord, and therefore they subjected their wills to his. He was the Lord. So here's this third group. Fascinating how on one day in God's providence, all of those views are represented in one place at one time. It's as if we're intended to be confronted with the choices as they were that morning. Any neutral people standing around the fringes of the crowd had to make a choice. Now, we're not told what happened next, but it's clear that Jesus' family did not prevail. They did not take him back to Nazareth. They went home empty-handed, and undoubtedly his brothers went home angry and offended at his public response to them. Later, in God's grace, they would come to embrace him as Lord and Savior. But at this point, they go home angry, offended, and as John records later, sarcastic about his claims. Now, this passage... <clears throat> Verses 31 to 35 has some very serious implications, and not just those verses, but all of this section together. Some serious implications that I want us to think about. First of all, in response to Jesus' claims, there are only three viable options. The same three choices taken on that one day in Palestine, either he is a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord and God. Now, it's very important to realize that there is no middle ground. You see, there are always people who, who think they can have it both ways. They can acknowledge the remarkable moral character of Jesus Christ and yet still not acknowledge that he is Lord and God. The world is filled with people like this. He was a great prophet. He's a wonderful teacher. Yes, he was a fabulous example of how we ought to live. It's just not logically possible to take that position. C.S. Lewis 
was right. This is what he writes in Mere Christianity, one of my favorite quotes. I don't agree with everything C.S. Lewis wrote. He, he was not a theologian. He had some flawed views on several fronts, but I believe he was a brother in Christ, and on this front, I think he was absolutely right. Listen to what he writes. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. It's not an option. These are the options. And by the way, you can't be neutral. You can't say, I'm not going to land. Jesus won't let you do that either. In fact, turn to Matthew 12, and let me show you what he says on that very day, on that very morning, in this context. Matthew chapter 12, right after verse 25, that encounter with the Pharisees where they accuse him of being in league with Satan, being possessed by Satan, and he rebukes them. Notice one statement he makes that Matthew records that Mark does not record. Very interesting. Verse 30, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus was saying to those people gathered there in that crowded house that morning, faced with these three different groups of people, but maybe they were still on the fence, still undecided, still neutral, still trying to decide what they were going to do with Jesus. Jesus said, let me tell you something you can't do. You can't be neutral. The one who is not with me is what? Against me. Can I just stop here for a moment and say that you may be in a, from a Christian home but you know in your heart that you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, and you might have kidded yourself that that means you really just haven't taken a position. You're just for you. You're not really against Christ. You just want to do what you want to do, enjoy what you want, and you're still neutral about Christ. Jesus says, can't happen. You're not neutral. If you are not with me, you are against me. Decide where you're going to be, but you can't be neutral. John Broadus, the great American theologian of the time of the Civil War, wrote this, In this great and deadly struggle, there can be no neutrality. No man can be friends with both sides, nor be indifferent to both. It is probable that many of those present were thinking they would not take sides between Jesus and the blaspheming Pharisees, Men often think that they are by no means opposing Christ's service, though they are not engaged in it. This is impossible. If we are not yielding Christ our whole heart, we are really yielding him nothing. Professed neutrality 
may even be more offensive to him. Better to be on one side or the other than to say you you just haven't decided. There's only these three options. Jesus did claim to be God, and these are the, the alternatives. As Jesus' followers, we're gonna be treated the same way he was treated. As Jesus' followers, we too will be thought of often as either deceived, simple, naive, weak-minded, or even as far as insane, out of our minds, lost our senses, or liars, hypocrites, some kind of selfish agenda actually in league with the devil himself. And you will find people saying these things about Christians today. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series titled, Jesus, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord? Tom will have the sixth and concluding portion for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.